Let's go now to Hebrews chapter 2, which is the sermon text for today. And there we read the writer to the Hebrews uh, say this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by, whom, for, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So far the reading of God's most holy word, and we pray that the Lord would bless the explanation of this text and also the application of it to our lives today. Uh, Brothers and sisters, there are many in this world who will give honor uh, to the Jesus of the nativity, who want nothing at all to do with the Jesus of the Holy Scriptures and of history. Perhaps you've noticed this. Uh, The world will honor Jesus, provided that he be confined to the nativity scene. Uh, The world will give Jesus some honor, provided that he remain only Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, The Jesus of the nativity seems acceptable to the world, a babe laying in a lowly manger, born to poor and humble parents, surrounded by poor and humble shepherds. Uh, That Jesus, many within this world will have, uh, for that Jesus, if considered only in this way, really demands very little of us. And truth be told, we will have that Jesus too, won't we? Uh, For we are not ashamed, as some might be, of the lowliness of Christ, 
Uh, For we know that it was by his humiliation and through his suffering that he did accomplish our redemption for us. Indeed, we rejoice in the fact that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, uh, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we do rejoice in this, in the humiliation of Christ, him being humble for us. So we are happy to give honor to the Jesus of the Nativity, but we are also happy to bow before the Lord of glory, the Christ of the Holy Scriptures and also of history. We give honor to the whole Jesus, that is, Christ both in His humiliation and also Christ in His exaltation. For the Scriptures reveal that the same Jesus who was laying in that manger is also the one who before this was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Uh, The Jesus of the Nativity is also the one who, after his humiliation, was highly exalted, God having bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, friends, what I am trying to say here in this introduction is that it is good for us to give attention to the nativity of Jesus, but we should not lose sight of His glory while we do it. In considering Jesus' birth, we must also remember all that the Scriptures have to say concerning the significance of His person and His work. Hebrews chapter 2 is one of those places in Holy Scripture that does help us to understand something of the glory of Jesus Christ. Many other places do it too. In fact, even the birth narratives that are found in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, they do communicate the glory of the Christ and make it very clear and plain that He was more than just a babe laying in a manger, but was something far greater, and we will consider Uh, what Luke's gospel has to say about all of that uh, tonight. But Hebrews 2 helps us also to understand something of the glory of the Christ, something of the significance of His person and work. Remember uh, that the book of Hebrews was written to those who were Jewish, ethnically speaking, who had been raised under the Old Covenant and under, under Old Covenant Judaism, and they had professed faith in Jesus as the Christ Uh, But it appears as if they, for one reason or another, which we will not go into uh, this morning, were tempted to return uh, to the Judaism that they had known from birth. They were tempted to return to the Old Covenant and to participate in those those Old Covenant forms of, of worship. And so the writer to the Hebrews wrote to them, therefore, to compel them not to go back but to remain true to Jesus as the Christ, for Jesus the Christ is better. And the covenant of which He is the mediator is better than the old, uh, being founded upon better promises. And the arguments that we find for this in the book of Hebrews are are many, and they are complex. Uh, But here in chapter 2, we find Jesus Christ held forth to us as our great prophet, as our great priest, and as our great king. 
Under the old covenant, you know well that there were many prophets, there were many priests, there were many kings. Uh, But under the new covenant, there is one. Christ is the prophet. Christ is the priest. And he is the king whom we are to honor. And so my concern on this Christmas Eve is that as we do direct our minds towards the nativity of Christ, we also remember Christ in his glory. Uh, the end result should be that we bow down humbly before him and give him the worship and honor that he rightly deserves. And so let us consider from Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus the Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. Uh, the theme of Christ in his threefold office is actually found at the very beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. And I would like to quote now from the commentator's Kistemaker, I think that is how you say it, in Hendrickson, uh, they remark that in the first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the writer describes the Son as the person through whom God spoke prophetically, a high priest who provided purification for sins, and the one who in royal splendor sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The author continues this emphasis in the second chapter, which we are now considering, by portraying Christ as the Lord now, who as a prophet announces salvation, the king crowned with glory and honor, and as a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Let us now take each section of Hebrews chapter 2. In sequence, it is in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 2 that Jesus is described to us as our great prophet. In verse 1, we read, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He is saying to these Hebrews who have professed faith in Christ, who are tempted to go back, No, it is important that we pay even closer attention to the message that we have heard and take care not to drift away from it. I think the word therefore in verse 1 indicates that the author is here building upon principles that were already established beforehand. In particular, the author is building upon what was said in verses 1 of and 2 of chapter 1. The opening words of the letter to the Hebrews are, are these, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, and the but here is to say, in contrast to this, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And so under the old covenant, God communicated to His people through the prophets, prophets like Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to name a few. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. This Son, we learn, is the one whom God has appointed as the heir of all things. This Son, we learn, is the one through whom God created the world. So the revelation that we have received through Jesus Christ is far better than the revelations given under the Old Covenant Through the prophets. Indeed, the revelation given through Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, was supreme and it was therefore final. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. There is actually a similar principle 
communicated in John chapter 1. It, that, I think, is, is a more famous text. Uh, but it's the same idea that is found there. There we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, we read these famous words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And so here we have this concept of Christ as the great prophet communicated also in John chapter 1. The principle found both at the beginning of John and of Hebrews is this, under the old covenant, God did reveal himself truly through Moses and the prophets. But in Christ and under the new covenant, we have something better. Christ is the eternal word of God, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, and indeed the word that was God. He was the word of God and is the word of God, come in the flesh. In Christ, we have God incarnate. In Christ, we have the Word incarnate. In Christ, we have truth incarnate. Uh, This is why we say that Jesus is not just a prophet, but He is the prophet of God. And this is why the writer to the Hebrews says in 2.1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, What we have now received in Christ Jesus is so much greater than what before was given. How could we not pay much closer attention to it and give honor to Him? In verse 2 we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now when the writer to the Hebrews talks about the message declared by angels. He is referring to the law that God gave to the Israelites from Mount Sinai. Although the Old Testament in general, and and Exodus in particular, give no indication that God used angels to convey the law to the people of Israel, uh, Stephen, in his address to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7.35-53, and also Paul in his epistle to the Galatians, Galatians 3.19, they mention the instrumentality of angels. They mention how the law was given to Moses and it was mediated through, through angels. And so there is also a reference to angels being present at Mount Sinai and the blessing that Moses pronounced on the Israelites before he died. Here are the words of Moses. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So even Moses does mention in his parting words how when the law was given on Mount Sinai, Uh, The word, the law, was given and accompanied by 
ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. The angels were involved with the giving of the law. And so it is conceivable that oral tradition preserved this information for Stephen and Paul and the writer of Hebrews also. That is what uh, is being referred to here, how since the message declared by angels proved reliable, it is a reference to the giving of the old covenant law. If the law of the old covenant, therefore, and here is the reasoning of the writer to the Hebrews. If the law of the Old Covenant, therefore, which was declared by angels, proved to be reliable and proved to be true and binding so that those who broke it were justly punished, here is the reasoning. What will happen to us if we refuse to listen to this message communicated to us, not by angels, but by the Son of God Himself? Christ is the prophet of whom even Moses himself spoke, saying to the people of Israel, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Deuteronomy 18.15 Christ is the prophet. He is the one who has revealed God to us most fully and finally. It is to him that we are to listen. That is what the writer to the Hebrews is urging. And what did Christ reveal? As our prophet, among other things, he has revealed to us uh, the way of salvation, which is through faith in him. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. Remember, uh, what will happen to us, reasons the writer to the Hebrews, if we neglect, he says, such a great salvation. In verse 3b, we read, it, our salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So here, the writer to the Hebrews is addressing this question, how did you come to have this message, this great message of salvation, given not by angels but by the Son Himself? How did you come to have it? This was a question that would have been on the minds of the Hebrews themselves who received this letter. It's on our minds too And what he says is that you came to have it in this way. It was declared, first of all, by the Lord Jesus himself. Christ declared this message. After that, it was attested by those who heard the message. In other words, those who listened to Jesus' actual words and saw him in the flesh and witnessed his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, they attested to the words of Christ. They passed it on To others, and as they did it, God Himself also bore witness to the truthfulness of their message by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And so there were miracle workers present during that apostolic age when eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and teachings were still alive. And why were these miracles performed by them? It was in order to prove that the message they were communicating was indeed true and from God. The signs and wonders and various miracles that the eyewitnesses of Christ performed, they functioned as a kind of stamp of approval from God Himself, that the message they were conveying was true. And so you and I, like those to whom the epistle to the Hebrews was addressed, We have not had the privilege of hearing the voice of Christ, our prophet, directly. 
but we do have record of his words attested by those who did hear him and validated by the signs and miracles that God did work through those eyewitnesses of Jesus. And these words are preserved for us where? In the pages of Holy Scripture. It is this word, the words of Christ the prophet, as declared by his apostles and preserved in the Holy Scriptures, that we must pay careful attention to. And so that is the thing I'm urging you to do, even in this holiday season where we remember the birth of Christ, that you would consider the nativity of Christ, yes, and that you would marvel at the way in which he came into this world so lowly and humble, but that you would remember also that in Christ we have the prophet, the one who has come from God to reveal God to us fully and finally. And the question that we must ask of ourselves then is, are we paying attention to his word, the word that he has given to us? Are we paying attention to it and submitting our lives to it in every respect? Do we give honor to Christ as our great prophet? Christ is also our king. It's in verses 5 through 9 that Jesus is described as our great king. There we read, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere and then The writer to the Hebrews quotes Old Testament scripture texts. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, the kingly language, I think, is hard to miss. You probably noticed it. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews is talking about the one to whom the world to come has been made subject. A king has subjects. And the writer to the Hebrews is talking about the king of the new heavens and the new earth. He remarks that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but rather, and he is here quoting from Psalm 8, he has subjected the world to come to the Son of Man, who God did for a little while make lower than angels, meaning this Son of Man became human for a time, and he crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So who is this Son of Man? We might be left to wonder Uh, But uh, the writer to the Hebrews gets most uh, clear in verse 9 when he simply says, namely Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. It is Jesus who is this great king. It is Jesus who became lower than angels, took on human form for a time. It is to Jesus to whom the world to come has been subjected. He is the king of the new heavens and of the new earth. Jesus, the Christ, is our great king. And here we learn that everything is now in subjection to Him. God has left nothing outside of His control. And though it is true that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, and you and I would agree with this, that when we observe the world around us, it doesn't appear as if everything is in Christ's control. It appears as if much is out of His control, in fact. But we do see through the testimony of the apostles that Jesus has already been crowned with glory and honor. When did this happen? Except at his resurrection from the dead and also his ascension to the Father's right hand. And so we have witnessed it, not with our own eyes, but through the testimony 
of the apostles, that Jesus Christ has already been crowned with glory and honor, having been raised from the dead and having ascended to the Father's right hand. Everything now already has been put in subjection to him. He is now our great king. When he returns, we will see it clearly that indeed everything is in subjection to him. It was through suffering and death that Christ did conquer as our great king. How did he become our victorious and conquering king? We are told at the end of verse 9, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is not usually the way that kings gain power. In fact, this is the way that kings lose power typically by suffering death. But Christ, our Lord, did gain power by suffering death for us. It was through death, through suffering, that Christ did conquer as our great King. It was through suffering, particularly the sufferings of the cross, that Christ did win the great and decisive victory for all who belonged to Him. It was there by dying on that cross and by raising from the tomb on that third day that Christ defeated Satan, the enemy of God and the people of God, and even death itself, which is the just penalty for sin. Christ faced our most formidable foe on that cross. He went to battle for his people. And just as David, who would become king, confronted Goliath, not only for himself, but for all Israel, so too Jesus the Christ confronted Satan himself and did taste death itself, not for himself, but for all of his people. Failure would have meant failure for all, and victory would mean victory for all. And indeed, he did raise from the grave victorious. It is because of the victory won by King Jesus uh, that we are able with Paul to say, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How can we speak with such confidence? How can we view ourselves as being conquerors in this way? It is because of the victory won by Jesus Christ, our King. I think we should remember that there were very many kings under the Old Covenant, But Christ is better than them all. Christ is the king that David spoke of in Psalm 10, where he said, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. It is is of Christ that Psalm 110 speaks. He is that great king that is mentioned here in that psalm. Uh, Jesus Christ is the supreme king whose kingdom shall never come to an end. That was promised to David by the mouth of Nathan the prophet, who long ago said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long will this king reign? Forever is what 2 Samuel 7.13 says. This king will reign forever and ever. Was it Solomon then who was the fulfillment to that prophecy, that promise made to David ultimately? 
No, because Solomon's reign came to an end. Ultimately, this prophecy was concerning Christ, the king. Christ is our great king. He's the king of the new creation. He, after his suffering, has been crowned with glory and honor. All things are in subjection to him. Nothing has been left outside of his control. And so the question we must ask of ourselves even today is this. Do you have Christ as king? Is he your Lord? Have you bowed before him? Have you pledged your life to him to serve him always? It is the only appropriate thing for us to do. So as we consider the nativity in this time of year, that is wonderful. But let us not forget that there, that babe laying in the manger, is Christ the king. And we are to honor him as such. Uh, Lastly, it is in verses 10 through 18 that Christ is described as our great priest. Uh, There we read, and I will read verses 10 through 18 and then make a few remarks about this passage. There we read, For it was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Do you have flesh and blood? You do. And so do I, because we are human beings, and this is what we are made up of. Since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is, the great high priest, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Did Christ come to help angels? Was that his work? Was that his mission? No, he did not come to help angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, you and I. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." There is really a great deal that could be said about this very beautiful passage. Uh, Time will only allow for a few brief remarks. Uh, Let me simply ask this, and I think it is the question that is perhaps behind uh, all that is said here in verses 10 through 18. Why the incarnation? Why the incarnation? It is such a mysterious doctrine, isn't it? It's, It's such a mysterious thing to consider, that God determined to 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 deliver his people and to earn salvation for his people by assuming and taking upon himself a human nature and human flesh. It is such a strange and mysterious thing. It's hard for us even to fathom how it could be. Uh, But yet we believe in the incarnation that Jesus the Christ was the God-man, God the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. Uh, Why did Quoting our confession now, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Why why this? Why the incarnation? Why Jesus Christ, the God-man? I think the answer that is given here in Hebrews 2 
is that it required one with a human nature to redeem those who were by nature human. I think that is what is being taught here. It required one with a human nature to redeem those who were by nature human. We are told in verse 10 that the mission of the Christ was to bring many sons to glory. That was his mission, to take some from amongst the sons of men and to bring them to glory. It was fitting or right that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ came to save sinners and he did so by sharing in our suffering. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, <coughs> the author excuse me, says this was fitting or this was right. Christ calls us brothers because he does truly share in our human nature. We have flesh and blood and he himself likewise partook of the same thing. He truly died as only humans could die so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who suffer fear of death and who were subject to lifelong slavery. God cannot die. Angels also do not die. Human beings do die, and human beings do live in this slavery, this lifelong fear of death. And Christ died because He did truly take upon Himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities. That is why the Son of God took on human flesh, is in order to redeem human beings, in order to redeem humanity. And so why did the Son of God take upon Himself a human nature? So that He might save those who are by nature human. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, is our high priest. He shared in our humanity. He suffered as we suffer. He died, which is something that we humans do. And He died not for His own sins, for He had none, but for our sins. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. This means that He died a death that did atone for sins. He shed blood which did cover others' sins. His death wiped away the sins of many people. Under the Old Covenant, there were many priests, but they themselves could not remove sin. They offered up sacrifices to God on behalf of the people which did symbolize the removal of sin. Those sacrifices did also work to make the people of God right with God. But Christ, who is the high priest, offered up not the blood of bulls and goats, but His very own blood, and shed blood, His shed blood did actually atone for the sins of many. And so, friends, I, I'm glad that we do, once a year, give special attention to the nativity of Christ. It is good that we remember His long-awaited arrival, and it's good that we consider the lowly and humble way in which he came into this world. And there is much that we can learn from emphasizing that. Uh, his humiliation, His lowliness. There is much that we can learn from emphasizing that. But we must also remember 
His glory, this babe that was laying in the manger, was from birth, indeed, even from before the foundation of the world, destined to be the Christ, our Savior, our great prophet, priest, and king. And it is this Jesus, the Lord of glory and of grace, it's this Jesus that we need. Our confession says that in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of Christ's prophetical office. The confession does not mean to insult us here, but is simply speaking honestly concerning our condition. As humans, our understanding of God and of ourselves and of the world in which we live is so limited. As limited creatures, we need our Creator to reveal Himself to us. This He has done through the prophets in times past, but in these last days He has spoken through His Son, the eternal Word of God, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we need that. We need the prophetical office of Christ so that we might know God truly and so that we might might walk before Him in holiness and know the way of salvation. Our confession says that in respect of our alienation from God and in perfection of the best of our services, we need Christ's priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. We are by nature defiled by sin and we need to be cleansed. We are by nature alienated from God and we need to be reconciled to Him. In times past, priests did serve in the temple to offer up sacrifices on behalf of the worshiper. But Jesus the Christ is the high priest who is Himself the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is Him, the Christ, our great high priest that we need. Our confession says that in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God, And for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need Christ's kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to His heavenly kingdom. And so here we learn that by nature, we do not naturally run to God, but we run away from Him. We do not naturally surrender to His will, but seek to do our own will instead By the grace of God, Christ our King does first conquer who? He conquers us. He subdues our hearts. He subdues the hearts of those given to Him by the Father. He convinces, subdues, draws, upholds, and delivers us from the domain of darkness and does promise to preserve us to His heavenly kingdom. We need Christ as our King. It is this Christ that we need. We need Christ the prophet, priest, and king, and it is this Christ that demands something from us also. What does this Christ demand from us then? He demands that we submit to him in every respect. We must humble ourselves and listen to his word. We must allow his word, his his, his prophetic word, to govern all that we believe and all that we do in this world. His prophetical office demands that we submit to Him and listen to His Word. His priestly office demands that we humble ourselves before Him and that we trust in Him and that we say, in you and in you only do I have the hope of salvation through faith in your shed blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. And we must also surrender to Christ the King. We must bow before Him and say, you are my Lord now and forever. It is this Christ that we need so that we might worship Him and serve Him always in this world. Brothers and sisters, would you bow before our God for a word of prayer with me? 
Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for this season in which we're able to slow down and reflect upon his first coming. We do thank you for the lowly way in which he came and the example that we have in him that we too should live humble lives, not puffed up with pride, not arrogant, not living for self but for others. We thank you for that, Lord. But we also thank you for the glory of Christ. We thank you for his majesty. We thank you for his great power. We thank you that he is our prophet, priest, and king. I do pray for those who are here this morning that they would indeed bow before Christ. Help us all in this, Lord, not to live as independent people in this world, self-confident and self-assured, Lord, but help us come before you humbly and to say, Lord, who are we before you? We are your creatures. You are the creator, and we do need you. We need you to reveal yourself to us. This you have done in Christ and through the pages of Holy Scripture. We need the forgiveness of sins, and this you have accomplished through Christ Jesus, our high priest. And we do do need you to conquer us, first of all, and also all of your and our enemies. This you have done through Christ, our King. Lord, help us to serve him and worship him well in this world. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen.